0: Um, Turn over in your Bibles to Matthew. We're going through a study in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the third message, just kind of scratching the surface, if you you will. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 17, and we talked about, is that just a list of names or is there something more there? And um, we talked a little bit about how important the lineage and the genealogies and everything were. To the uh, Jewish mindset, how they spoke of their tribal location, how that was so important, how it it was used in transacting real estate. Um, Also, it was a a real uh, test of their lineage. Um, Sometimes when they would move from here to there, uh, they didn't have any records. And so people would show up and say, hey, I'm of the tribe of Levi. And they had to have some proof of that. They had to have some, uh, I'm the father of so-and-so, because certain people just kind of wanted to, uh, claim that they were priests but they weren't and, and Israel obviously protected that so they had some tests of their lineage involved and also they used, the Romans used it for taxation not much different than our IRS today but we looked a little bit about that last week and um, uh, today I want to kind of look at a different aspect of the the, the genealogy and um, I think one thing that is important to understand that this The the genealogy that we're looking at here in in Matthew is not just a list of names. There's something more there to it. And I think it's something uh, practical for us uh, that we can apply to our lives as well. Um, But as we sang some of these songs this morning and as God has moved our hearts to worship Him, uh, one thing that Matthew presents is that Jesus is the King. Amen? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And there's there's no other king like him. Because see, back in that mindset, when a king came to rule, that's exactly what they expected him to do. They would rule with an iron fist. And we're going to find out just by looking at this genealogy a, a little closer that Jesus Christ was truly the king, but he was truly the king of grace. He came to extend God's grace, God's favor, to man. And it really shows us throughout this genealogy that God is no respecter of persons, which is kind of interesting to me. We know that to be true, but you think that if you were going to set up a king, especially your own son, that you would have you know just this pristine genealogy, that everything would just be right in place and everything would be perfect. Everybody named in the, in the family tree would just be stellar. You know? Well, that's not the case, and what that shows us is that that when we look at this genealogy closer, we see the theme of grace kind of spread throughout like a thread through these lives. Now, take heart; we're not going to go through this genealogy name by name by name. Uh, it was all I could do last week was just to read it to you, okay, and get through it. And I botched some of the names at that, but uh, for the most part, um, there's a lot more that to hear than, than meets. The eye, And today we're just going to kind of uh, look at the surface of this. But the first thing I, I see that, that's interesting to me is that God, in, in verse 16, jump all the way to the end of the genealogy, in verse 16 it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, as we look at the idea of grace, we all know what grace is, right? Grace is God's what? Unmerited favor. It's something that we we don't earn. He just he, 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 he lavishes it upon us. And God wants us to see the grace in the, the whole setup of the birth of Christ as we look through this. And Mary, who became the mother of the Messiah and the, the Son of God, um, Nobody knew about Mary before this. There's not a lot of information that we have about Mary. There are some cousins and things like that tied in here a little bit, very loosely. But for the most part, we don't have a lot of background on Mary. She just kind of pops on the scene here. And I don't want to rattle your boots too much this morning or shake you up too much, but I want you to understand that Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was a sinner. Beloved, he was a sinner just like you and I. Now, I don't know what religious background you come from this morning, but I was raised in a church, Catholic church, that taught me that Mary was anything but a sinner. Mary was someone who was to be lifted up and to be worshipped. Mary was someone who was to be adored. You prayed to Mary. Um, you know, that was one of the things when you went in the confessional, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. And then, you know, you'd give your list of sins. And, and I remember the priest, you know, go say, uh, for our fathers, three Hail Marys, and, you know, whatever, Apostles Creed or something. And you'd go out there and you'd kneel down in the pew on the little kneel rail there and uh, you'd recite those prayers. And it never even dawned on me, why are we praying to Mary? And it's important for us to understand that Mary was just like a lot of other... Everyone else there in that time, in that day, and in our day, we're all sinners, the Bible says. We're all sinners. We all need the touch of God's grace. Every one of us. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, brother, not me, you know, I'm pretty good, I do this. You know what? I grew up in a family, a Catholic family that... You know, I was surrounded by brothers who were, um, I guess for lack of a better term, just hellions. They just, you know, they were just, caused problems. Some more than others. And uh, one of them's a pastor now, and, and he was probably the worst of all. But, you know, as I look back on that, and I'm thinking, when somebody first shared the gospel with me and said, you know what, Steve, you need to come to Christ because, you know, you, you, you need the grace of oh, God. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm a Catholic. I'm an altar boy. Do you know who you're talking to? You know, uh, it, it wasn't pride. It was just misunderstanding on my part. I just thought, what are you talking about? I need the grace of God. I'm a Catholic, for goodness sakes. Why would I need the grace of God? I belong to the church, the Catholic church. I go to mass faithfully every week go to confession once a month go to the you know the do the the ashes on the head and the you know the, 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 remember those Have you ever gone through confirmation in the Catholic Church when you went up there and that priest took those two white candles and put them up to your neck and they prayed a prayer and oh, I just remember the, the the smell of the incense was incredible but then also the coldness of those candles on my neck just sent chills down my spine I just remember certain things about the Catholic Church, the Stations of the Cross, all these things, and that's what I was raised with. And so if somebody would have came to me and said, you know what, Mary was a sinner, I probably was ignorant enough as a Catholic, to I wouldn't have reacted. But when we understand what the Catholic Church teaches concerning Mary, it's anything but she was a sinner. And I'm not here to bash the Catholic Church this morning, Trust me, I'm not. I'm here to give you a fuller understanding of, of what they believe concerning Mary. And whether it's you're worshiping Mary or you're worshiping your, your new car or your new motorbike or your new house or your new job, anything that comes in between us and God as far as worship is wrong. That's what the Bible clearly says. Well, the Bible tells us that Mary had to be a sinner because she was just like everybody else. She was probably better than most. And no doubt, she had a a deeply devout religious life. But she was a sinner who needed a Savior. And if you would have compared me to my brother back then, you would have said, well, you know, it's like night and day. Steve's a good guy compared to him. And that's what I did when somebody shared the gospel with me. I was comparing myself to my brothers, saying, hey, I'm not like them. And finally, somebody had to say, you know what, that's not the standard. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if that's true, all means all. That includes Mary. I can go a step further. That even includes the Pope, beloved. You may find that hard to swallow this morning. But I want you to open your mind a little bit in love. And let's see what... The unbiblical exaltation of Mary is, but then also what the scriptures teach. But Mary was a woman who needed a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ had to be a Savior to her as well as her own son, which is incredible when you stop and think about it. Yet God in his incredible mercy and grace chose her, even though he didn't have to. He didn't have to do it that way. He could have just formed Jesus right out of the dust of the ground like he did Adam if he wanted to. But he chose one woman. Above all others, he chose her to be the mother of Jesus. Not that she deserved it. Not that there was a line of women standing in line waiting for this. When she got to the head of the line, it's like, you know, you, did you read the news this last week or watch on the, on the uh, t- television? You know, they have this PlayStation 3, I guess. Sony came out with this thing. I mean, it's incredible, the ruckus around these little games. I mean, you have literally people shooting each other over these. You go on the Internet and this, something that sells for $600 is going for an excess of $2,500. I mean, it's, it is. It's crazy. Well, there wasn't any kind of a a ruckus about, Well, I want to be the mother, I want to be... No, God sovereignly chose Mary. Well, let's take a step back and just kind of understand some of... And we're just scratching the surface. This is not a a, a, kind of a, a sermon on Mary herself, but I want us to give us some clear understanding of what the Bible says, but also, from my own upbringing, what the Catholic Church taught me about Mary and how unbiblical now I see it to be. Because you have to understand, the Roman Catholic Church has elevated Mary to a place of just incredible uh, heights. And I'm sure that if Mary knew about it, <laughs> uh, she would be rather upset. Uh, some of the things that the Catholic Church, some of you who were raised in the Catholic Church, have come out of that, or maybe you're still in it, you understand that. You understand what they teach about Mary, or maybe you don't. I didn't. I was kind of an ignorant Catholic, even I was an altar boy and all that stuff. I just went through the the motions. But one of the first things that you understand about Mary is that she was sinless. She was sinless. She was perfect in every way. She never sinned. You say, Well, how about you know, when she was uh, when she was born? Didn't she sin when she was born? No. Because the Catholic Church teaches that Mary, as well as Christ, was born of a virgin. That Mary was, was born of a virgin, just like Jesus was born out of her virginity. And so they claim that Mary was sinless. Now, that flies in the face of everything Scripture teaches about anybody, because it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say some, or it doesn't say all but Mary. It says all. And we're going to find from Mary's own words that she recognized herself as a sinner in the Scriptures. They also maintain that Mary maintained perpetual virginity. Um, In other words, she never had any children. She never had any sexual relations at all with anyone. And you find that hard to believe because the people who knew her were able to recite all the names of her children. And, you know, we we see that. They also believe that Mary was sinless. She was immaculately conceived. She was born of a virgin. She maintained her virginity. And this is kind of mind-blowing, but they also believe that Mary is co-redemptrix. With Christ. In other words, as Christ redeems us from our sin, He purchases us from our sin by His death on the cross. What the Catholic Church teaches is that, well, Mary, along with Jesus, purchases our salvation. That she's on an equivalent plane in saving us. And you can go to any Catholic theology book and find this stuff. I'm not making it up. She's also not only co-redemptrix, but she's also co-mediatrix, which means basically that she, along with Jesus, is our mediator. See, that's why in the Catholic Church you pray to Mary. Because you really believe that she's hearing your prayers, and and to get to Jesus you have to go through his His mother, because who would be more compassionate than His mother? And so you go through Mary to get to Jesus, to get to God. There's only one problem with that. Because if she's co-mediatrix, that means there's how many? Two mediators between God and man. There's Jesus and his mother Mary. Well, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there's one mediator between God and man. Only one. And that, that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see where this teaching kind of flies in the face of some scriptures that we know to be true. They also believe this, which is kind of amazing. They believe that Mary never died, that she assumed into heaven, and she never died because she was sinless and she was virgin born. And if you stop and you look at those things, that she's a mediator, that that she's a redeemer, that she assumed uh, from from uh, from earth right directly into heaven, that she was sinless. That she was immaculately conceived. That mirrors, beloved, exactly what the Bible teaches about our Lord and Savior. And unfortunately, none of that is true. It's just not true. You may sound that may sound harsh to you. That may sound, you know, but it's it's the truth, though. And I pray to God that someone would have told me early on in my Catholic uh, upbringing, hey, wait a minute. You know, is it all about your church? Or or do you have a a solid foot to stand on? Do you you have something called the Bible? See, the, the good thing about the Catholic Church is they do believe in the Bible. They believe in the Scriptures. You can take any Catholic and show them the Word of God. As somebody did me one day, my eyes were opened. I thought, wow, this is interesting. And we have a foundation upon which truth is built on, that's the Word of God. See, it would be a long thing for me to sit up here and say, well, you know what, we know the Bible teaches uh, this, that that, you know, uh, that it's, it's one husband, one wife for life. We know the Bible teaches that. But you know, here at Grace Bible Church, we have another little booklet that we pull out now and then, and it's called you know, the Doctrines of Grace. And the Doctrines of Grace say basically that it's okay if you have one or two wives or one or two husbands. It's no big deal. You would say, "Hey, wait a minute! No, that's not right. That's wrong. There's something wrong there." Well, exactly right, because the Word of God is our covering, is the umbrella upon which we, we build all our theology and everything. Everything has to fall under its covering. So, if I'm up here saying something that's out in left field, hopefully one of you can come up and say, "Hey, you know what? You know, you said that it's, it doesn't have to be one husband, one wife, or life. This kind of a thing, and you know, you can have. Where do you find that in Scripture?" And if I whip out my little doctrines according to grace or whatever, you know, you can say, no, I'm not interested in your little writings. I'm interested in what God's Word says. And unless I could show you truly from God's Word, then I would have to say, you know what, I'm wrong. And that's where we're at with a lot of, uh, of, of folks who were brought up in the Catholic Church. They have the Bible, but they also have what we call the traditions of the church. And the traditions of the church teach certain things. And those certain things are hard to let go of. And sometimes even when you show them in Scripture, here's what it says about this, here's what it says about that. They say, well, you know, but the church holds to this. See, that's why it's so important, beloved, that, you know, that's why when you come to Christ, you make Jesus Christ. You you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's nothing else. There's no other church. There's no, nothing else that fits into that formula. He is the only one that we worship. He's the only one that we follow. His word is the only instruction book, you know, Bible basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what he left us with. We don't come up with our own little deal over here on the side. We want to understand what God's word says about things. And so it's important to understand some of these things that they teach But on the other hand, what does Scripture say about Mary? Well, let's look at that. Look over at the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. It doesn't say a lot, but it does say some things about Mary. Mark chapter 3, and look at verses 31 to 35. And I'll just read this for you here. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Then his brothers, who's Christ, talking about the Lord here, and his mother came, standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Look at what Jesus says. But he answered them, and he said, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in the circle of all those that sat around him, and he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What's he doing? He's minimizing... The place of Mary, his mother. It almost seems rude. Can you imagine a Thanksgiving meal? Your mom walks in. Hey, mom's here. And you stand up at the table and go, Who is my mother? Yeah, warm welcome. Now you'd give her the cranberries with the little... You know, Jim, you have that cranberry sauce and it's got those... I don't know what it... It's, it's just, uh, it's good, but it's got like, like peels in it or something, you know? I'm an old kind of cranberry. You know, I just like the stuff out of the can, the jelly kind. That's, that's the stuff. You know, I don't want these little berries and the stuff gets stuck in your teeth. And, you know, that's what you'd give to, you know, if you had that kind of relationship with your mother, you'd give her those things, you know. But it's important to understand here that Jesus was minimizing the place of Mary as if she was just a face in the crowd. He didn't say, oh, behold, the mother of God. Mary had no privileged position when it came to the issue of spiritual relationship with God. None. Mary had to come to Jesus as Savior the same way anybody else would. Her physical relationship with Jesus did not release her from the obligation to do the will of God, the will of Father. That's what he was saying. Turn over to Luke chapter 11. Another... Section speaks of Mary. Luke chapter 11, and look at verses 27 and 28. Luke 11, 27 and 28. It says, And it happened as he spoke these things, who we're talking about? We're talking about Jesus once again, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed be the womb that bore you, and the breasts which nurtured you. But he said, More than that, in other words, blessed more than that are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, Jesus saw the real issue here. There was nothing specially worthy of worship concerning Mary. The real issue in any Christian's life, in anybody's life, is are you obeying the word of God? Mary needed to hear that just as much as anybody else. That's what, that's what the Christian life comes down to. It comes down to, you know, people make it so complicated sometimes. You know, well, gee, you know, we got all this stuff to do. and everything. You know what? Just go day by day and ask God, you know what, God? I just want to be obedient to you today. I just want to be obedient to your Word today. And He's given you a gift that, that surpasses all gifts, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which resides within us as believers. And we should just say, hey, you know what? I want to be yielded to your will today. I want to do what you want me to do today, God. Fill me with your Spirit. Control me with your Spirit. Help me get through this day. Help me be obedient to your Word. Because this right here says, that, you know what, if you do that, you'll be blessed more than Mary. And she was blessed. Like I just said, she was chosen among a crowd to be the mother of their Savior. Now, it's, I think it's also important for us to understand that when we when we see these these different things pop up in scripture that that's what it is it's scripture it's not somebody's viewpoint it's it's the word of god turn over to Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 is talking about the virgin's name, Mary, and it says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, what? Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Well, sure. Blessed are you. Highly favored. You know what highly favored means? Highly favored means that you are, are that, that God's grace is divinely set upon you in a special way. You're endued with God's grace. That's what that means. Mary needed God's grace, beloved. And grace is simply that unmerited favor given to who? Given to sinners. <clears throat> if you're not a sinner, you don't need the grace of God. You'll get to heaven on your own because you're perfect. Perfect. Can I see how many hands here are perfect? (laughs) Yeah, you know. If you raise your hand, you're lying. And, you know, that's a sin, so that makes you imperfect. Look over at at verse 46 of the same chapter. 46 and 47. And this is kind of the, the song of Mary, some call it. It says in in 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies who? The Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God who? My Savior. Interesting. If she was sinless, and she was perfect, why would she need a Savior? And look at verse 48. For He has regarded my what? My lowly, State of the maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. You know, Mary demonstrated the fact, she demonstrated it herself that she needed a Savior because she was a sinner. Now, Mary was a wonderful lady, don't get me wrong. She was probably very devout, she was probably a, a, very religious, she was a, obviously a pure virgin. But she was a sinner who needed a Savior. Do you see where God's grace comes into this genealogy? That God chose a sinner. Just like everybody else. He chose a sinner to be the mother of the Savior. To me, that's incredible. I mean, if I was God and I was going to have a son born on earth, I would, I would put a search out. You know, it'd be like, you know, kind of mother idol or something, you know, teen idol kind of deal. You know, okay, you know, we're going to have tryouts. You know, and you'd have to be verified that you're a virgin. All oh, that you'd have to go through all sorts of things. And if there was anything tawdry in your background, well, you'd be eliminated immediately because this is going to be the mother of, of the Savior of, of mankind the mother of Jesus Christ. But God picked somebody basically out of almost obscurity who acknowledged her need, who acknowledged she was a sinner who needed a Savior. I see God's grace in that. And that shows us that, you know what, the King, Jesus Christ, when He came to earth, He didn't come for just those who deserved it. He didn't come for just the elite. He didn't come for just the rich. He didn't come for just the religious. He came to love it because he knew that everybody needed God's grace. But that's not the only place that we see God's grace is in Mary. And like I said, this is going to be a big, big thing on Mary. That's all I'm going to say about Mary. But also back in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, it says this, that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ... The son of David, the son of Abraham. It names two people there. David and Abraham. And you think, well, these guys must be good guys. I mean, come on. Well, you stop and you think about the great king David was the one who sinned with Bathsheba. He even had her husband murdered. 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you can read that. David was also a polygamist. He was a rotten father and one who slaughtered multitudes of humanity. So many, it says, that his hands were too bloody to even attempt to build the temple of God. 1 Chronicles 22.8 David was no angel. David was a sinner, and this sinner needed the grace of God. But you know what? God chose him to include, chose to include him in the genealogy of his own son. You think of Abraham, the great patriarch Abraham. And I'm not saying these guys don't have good qualities, but this morning we're just gonna roast them a little bit and and point out their bad qualities. (laughs) He lied about his wife in Egypt. Remember? Brought them both into shame, Genesis twelve. He disbelieved God's promise concerning his son, and then he committed adultery with Hagar. And then he lied again about Sarah being his sister. And here you find these two sinners, and yet their seed was, of their seed was born the son of God. See, that's grace. These guys didn't deserve that. These these guys aren't in the like top ten of you know uh, spiritual men back then. I mean, obviously God used them in a magnificent way. Don't get me wrong. And we don't want to belittle that, but we also want to show you that you know what they needed God's grace, like we all do. God used them both. One to father the nation of the Messiah and the other to father his royal line. So Jesus is a descendant of both David and Abraham and his connection with the Hebrew people is racial and it's also royal. It's just incredible. And you stop and you think even about these, these, these two guys' sons, Solomon and Isaac. The son to whom David looked for the next step in this fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, turned out to be a terrible tragedy. The life of Solomon, as you read about it, is a failure. It's a disaster. In spite of all his peaceful nature and his unmatched wisdom, it was a disaster. He led a life of stupidity and folly, the Bible says. the son of David's Flesh was a disappointment, and yet God's grace still intervened. You think of Isaac, the son to whom Abraham looked for the fulfillment of this amazing promise. When he was a hundred years old, Isaac means laughter, because it says the joy in Abraham's heart was—he was just laughing when he was born. Hopefully, you weren't laughing, Robert, when when your son was born. <laughs> Your wife probably would have clobbered you. (laughs) But here you see Jesus Christ, the son of David, and Abraham, and they they overcame all these failures and to be included in the line of the Messiah. But God's grace isn't just for one choice woman or these, these two men. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it says very clearly that So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. This covers three errors. And then it goes on, it says, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And then it goes on, it says, from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. The first period that Matthew mentions is the period of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the judges. It was a great period of... A lot of things went on there, but it was a period of birth and, and, and kind of the establishment of Israel as a nation. And then you think from David to Babylon, it was a period of decline and kind of everything went downhill. And then you think of the period from Babylon to Christ. You stop and you think, what is there significant about this period? Almost nothing. People say they don't know a lot about this period. It's just a kind of a shroud of darkness. So you have these three errors of generations going on, and-, and God includes them. And in closing, I just want to show you how far God's grace extends here. Look at verse 3. In this little genealogy in Matthew 1, it says, Judah begat Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You know what kind of lady Tamar was? In in Genesis 38, Judah basically had given Tamar as a wife to his oldest son. But after Tamar had become um, a childless widow, when her husband was judged by the Lord for his wickedness, she decided to do a little family planning of her own. And if you look in... Genesis 38, you can see this story. I'll just read it here in my notes in verses 13 to 18. It says, And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father in law goes up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And she put her uh, widow's garments off from her, and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was growing, and she was not given unto him, was grown, and was not given unto him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Come, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee, for he knew not that she was his daughter in law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge? Till you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that's in your hand. And he gave them to her and he came unto her and she conceived by him. Now, this is, <laughs> this is Tamar. Committed harlotry, incest, But that's not all. Out of that conception came twins, Perez and Zerah, who are listed there next in the genealogy. Just incredible. And it it just, the grace of God. Why would God include somebody like that? Because of His grace. Look at 5a. They're the beginning. Solomon begat Boaz. By who? Rahab. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. When you say Rahab, does the word harlot come to your mind? Well, it should. (laughs) That's what she was. She was a Gentile. Now remember, this is a a book that's mainly written to Jews. And they include a Gentile in the genealogy? Once again, the grace of God. Joshua 2 tells us about the story of those spies she hid in her house in Jericho. And from that prostitute came Boaz, a very godly man. And then thirdly listed here is Ruth, also in verse 5. you say, well, Ruth wasn't a prostitute. No. Ruth was a lovely lady, I'm sure. She was not guilty of incest. No. But she was also a Gentile. She was an outcast. And it's just not something that you would include in a genealogy for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Outside of the grace of God, of course. The last one in verse 6. Last lady he mentions here. And you've got to understand, even to mention a woman back in that culture was taboo. I mean, women were lower than dirt. And you just didn't include them in anything. And here's God writing the king of kings genealogy and he includes four of them. Five, including Mary. It says in verse 6, And David the king begot Solomon in the wife of Uriah. According to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, when Bathsheba was up on the roof Sunday, David happened to see her. And he said, hey, that's the one I want. That's it. He had sexual relationships with her. Produced a child. Made her an adulteress. Just stop and think. Of the four ladies listed here in Matthew 1, two of them are harlots. One was born out of incest. And then you have an, an adulteress. And they're the only ones mentioned in the whole genealogy of Christ, besides Mary. I mean, what's, what's the message God's sending us here? I think He's sending us, you know what? Jesus Christ is truly the King, but He's the King of grace. We serve, beloved, a God that's filled with Grace. You know, I, I didn't sense a lot of that growing up in the Catholic Church. You know, I didn't have the opportunity to go to a good, good Catholic school like some of you had. And, you know, I hear stories about the rulers across the knuckles and all this stuff, you know, concerning the nuns. And you kind of chuckle about that. You know, I, I just went to a regular school. But I remember hearing stories of, of, of certain things like that and, and thinking, wow, where's the grace in that? There is no grace in that. But in our God, beloved, is all the grace we'll ever need. And that's what really counts. I I hope that blesses your heart that you understand that our God is a God of grace. And we live in the age of grace right now, in the church age. I mean, God has extended His favor to men and women in so many different ways through the church. Just stop and think of the ways we're blessed as the body of Christ. So many people are so concerned about their their background and their pedigree and all this line of purity. Not God. He says, hey, if it wasn't for grace, none of you would even exist. That's why the Messiah came through a nation whose history was a degenerate one at best. Whose greatest leaders were sinful men. And yet he was the king of kings. I just want to leave you with this verse. Over in Matthew 9, verse 13. As we enter into this Thanksgiving season, we have a lot to be thankful for. But first of all, we should be thankful for God's grace, for His mercy upon us. In verse 13 of Matthew 9, at the end there, it says, For I, Jesus, is talking. He says, for I did not come to call the righteous. He didn't come to call the righteous, the religious, but who? Sinners to repentance. If you don't get anything out of this message this morning, I pray that that will ring true in your heart. That God came to call, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You say, well, why is that? Because sinners are the only people that have to repent. And the Bible says, once again, we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. And it's, it's kind of headed over the falls. And we need to stop and we need to say, okay, what do we do? Do we stay in the boat and just try to row harder upstream? Because these falls, we can hear them just rumbling, you know, and it's getting louder and louder and pretty soon we're going to go over to our death. I prayed this morning you're not just gonna, you know, stay in that boat by yourself and, and and your little religious beliefs and say, hey, I'm just gonna hang out here and do my best. I'm just gonna live the best life I can and hope that in the end it all works out. I love to ask people this question when you die, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen when you die? I'll tell you yesterday, you know, I've been sick for a couple of weeks, and yesterday I was out cutting my lawn and it was getting dark, so I was trying to hurry up. If you go over to my backyard right now, you'll see that I didn't finish. I thought I was gonna have a heart attack. Man. I was—I mean, you know—I'm pride myself and not being in the best of shape, but I'm in okay shape. And I'm back there, and I started breathing. The harder I breathe, I just thought, well, I'll just finish it, you know, a couple more. And I thought, you know what? This is stupid. I got kids coming. What if I drop dead here in the backyard? That wouldn't be very wise. So I stopped, and I went in, and, and as soon as I walked in the house, you know, and Big was like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm fine. Why?" You know, she goes, you are breathing like you just ran twenty miles. I said I feel like it, and I stopped and I thought that was kind of stupid. You know, your lung capacity is limited. You've been sick, and all this stuff. You can't just go out and, and go berserk with the lawnmower. You know, and uh, and and, and the, the, the the weird thing about all that was, you know what? I, I stopped and I thought, you know what? What would have happened if all of a sudden, man, I just poof! The old ticker stopped and face down on the lawn, I did. There I went. There I lay. You know, the mower's still running, <laughs> and I'm thinking. Praise God. Praise God, and I don't have to worry about that. Not because of who I am, but because of His grace. That He didn't come to call the righteous. He called to call call sinners to repentance. Here I am. (laughs) That's me. Sinner, sinner right here. That's what we need to understand. And if we can understand that, beloved, God says, hey, I welcome you. But if you go to Him saying, hey, I deserve that. I deserve to be in your heaven, God, because look at what I've done. I've given this, I've given that. The Bible says, you know what? They're filthy rags. That word, not the grocery out, but that word, filthy rags, you know, I used to compare it to the little rag Ken would wear when he's working around in the summer on his head, you know, to keep him cool. It's even worse than that. It is. It's it's more disgusting than that. You know what it's talking about? It almost as they... For you to understand or to share this with you, but you know what? You need to hear it because you need to understand what our good works look like before a holy God. That's, that's a used menstrual rag. That's what it's talking about. And yet we think we're bringing something to God that we should be proud of. And God's saying, you know what? Get that away from me. That makes me sick. It makes me want to vomit. The only way you get into this house The only way you come through this gate is by grace, and grace alone. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the pictures that you've painted for us in this genealogy of your grace. And Lord, we ask that if there's anyone here this morning, anybody, Lord, who is not trusting fully in your grace to save them, Lord, it doesn't matter what kind of family they came from. It doesn't matter how good they are on a daily basis. It doesn't matter how many times they come to church, where they've been baptized. All that stuff doesn't matter how much they give to charity, where they help out. It's irrelevant. It's like a dirty rag before you. And Lord, we need to understand that the only way that we can enter into your presence, into your holy presence, because we're so unworthy, we're so broken, we're so sinful as a people. The only way we could ever obtain an audience with You is through Your grace. And Lord, You've shown us Your grace over and over and over again. Lord, You've shown us Your grace in the birth of Your Son throughout His life, in His death, in His resurrection. Lord, we've seen Your grace over and over in the lives of others in the Scriptures. We've seen Your grace expressed in the lives of others in our own church. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is yet to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, God. I pray that you would move, you would work in their heart, that you would show them their need of a Savior. They would cry out to you, even in the quietness of this moment, Lord, that you would cause that repentance to fall upon their soul. Father, for us believers, Lord, I pray that we would never go a waking day without thanking you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for the word that says, For by grace we've been saved through faith, not of works. It's not something we do lest we should boast about it. Lord, we thank you that you've saved us by your grace. We pray that that message of the gospel, the grace contained in the gospel, will be on our lips forevermore. And that we'll live it out in obedience to you on a daily basis. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.